Thanks for tuning in to the Trinity Church Nottingham podcast. It's great to have you with us. My name is Amy, and together with my husband, Johnny, we lead the church here in Nottingham, England. Our vision is to see the church on fire and the city alive. And if we can help you in any way at all, feel free to get in touch and email us at info at trinitychurchnottingham.org. Okay, let's jump into the podcast. Well, I, I, partly in mind of the fact that we've got visitors and, and guests just joining us for the Thanksgiving, I wanted to start in a way that perhaps uh, people would expect, maybe expect every sermon to start, and that's with a little quiz. And we're going to begin with a quiz. Unfortunately, it's not a Bible quiz, but it is a quiz of ancient gods. So if you look to the screen with me, I'd love you to uh, just shout out if you know the answer. Who is Z- Zeus? Goodness me, you're good. Yes, that is Zeus, or if you want his Roman name, Jupiter. He's, uh, he's the, the king of the gods, in uh, some people's estimation at least. He's the Greek god of war, and a very powerful fellow, uh, if you don't mind me saying. Uh, next one. Okay, a little bit quieter on this, this, this fellow. I, I'm Ares, did I hear? It's not, it's not Ares. It's, yes, I think I heard it there, Apollo. Greek god of light, of music, of healing, truth, and poetry. It's almost like Apollo couldn't choose exactly what he wanted uh, to be god of. He knew that Zeus had sort of taken the god of war, so he just sort of scattered across the other categories. He's a poetic folk. That's Apollo. This one should be a bit easier. Yeah, Neptune, Poseidon. That's Poseidon. The fork gives it away. God of sea and earthquakes. This one, this isn't a Roman Yes, exactly, this is Thor, the Norse god, Thor, from whom, and you probably know this, from whom we get Thor's day, or Thursday. Every week he's got a day, which I think puts him above the rest. Uh, The god of lightning, and uh, the final god, does anybody know this? (laughs) Yeah, that's Pep, that's the Spanish god of football management. Uh, for those that don't know. Now, it, it may not surprise you to know. Uh, oh, that's not Manchester United, darling. That's Manchester City. <clears throat> You're forgiven. Now, I have lots of conversations with people uh, about God. That may or, not, may, may or may not surprise you to know that. I have conversations with people who are, are part of the church very often, but I also have conversations with people who aren't part of the church, who, who don't uh, profess uh, to have a relationship with God, who maybe, um, maybe have frustration uh, with God. And I speak to a lot of people, and uh, often what, what surprises me when I speak to people, either within the church or outside the church, is that people really wrestle with and they struggle with their image of what God is like, their picture, if you like, of what God is like. And when you drill down in conversations, what you often find, or at least what I often find, It's people who maybe uh, might initially say that they're atheists, they don't believe in a God. When you drill down, you find it often actually, not always the case, but often actually people are agnostic with with respect to the existence of God. They're on the fence, they're not sure, there may be a God, there may not, but what they're very firm in is that they want to reject a certain view of God, and it's often the view of God they grew up with. They're particularly certain that the, that the God who maybe they learned about 
maybe at church or maybe uh, outside of the church, maybe at school, maybe they had a, some kind of religious experience. Uh, they want to reject that particular perception of God. And actually, we see this in the church as well. I have conversations with, with many Christians who maybe have been part of the church for a long time who are actually pretty uh, confused about their picture, their vision of what God is actually like. And it creates sometimes a, a distance, a gap between them and God. And they maybe have subscribed to some kind of notion of having a relationship with God. But they really struggle to experience any closeness or intimacy or to be able to live in a constant connection with God. It's a problem about confusion about what God looks like. This is what Pete Gregg, who is a pastor and who writes on prayer, says about this matter. We can take Pep off the screen now. He says this, after more than 25 years in pastoral ministry, that is church ministry, 20 of them teaching on prayer, I've come to the conclusion that most people's biggest problem with prayer is God. They envisage him scowling, perpetually disapproving, invariably disappointed and needing to be placated or persuaded in prayer. If that's how you picture God, I really don't blame you for trying to avoid his gaze. Isn't that right? How many of us have that, that sense of God is a tyrant. God is somebody who's always expecting more. However much I give, there'll always be that little bit more that he wants. I confess, I, I have grown up. I, that vision of God is still alive in me. Now, it's less alive than it was, but it's still there. It's knocking about. It is, it is the God who demands perfection from me. Moral perfection, perfection of effort, perfection ultimately for me of performance. I don't know where it was along the way, but I sort of, I sort of captured this idea that I, I achieve and therefore I am. And I felt, feel really good about myself, felt really good about my relationship with God, about my general sense of self. If I was doing well, still do, when I'm doing less well in this, that, or the other area, I really begin to struggle. Maybe you, too, have an issue with the picture, the image, the operative image of God that you carry around with you day by day. Why do I bring this up? Well, because for the next seven or eight weeks as we come into Easter, we're going to be looking at prayer. And we're going to be doing that by looking at the Lord's Prayer. And what what I've observed and what I'm, what I'm saying this morning is that unless we firstly fix this issue around our image, our perception, our vision, and our view of who God is, we're going to really struggle in prayer. And everything we say for the next seven to eight weeks is going to be redundant. It's going to be a waste of time. We have to begin at the beginning. We have to begin with questioning the question, what is God actually like? You know, I contend... Uh, that it doesn't really matter whether you know the names of the Greco-Roman or the Norse gods. This is my contention. That probably won't surprise you to hear that in a church. But it really does matter that you know the name. That is the identity and the essence of who God 
the God who made the heavens and the earth and who revealed himself in Jesus is. You need to know the answer to that question. So what is God actually like? And how might we discover that today? Well, for Christians, for those who profess to follow Christ, the answer to that is Jesus. This is where the quiz becomes a bit more familiar. You know, the answer to the quiz in church and Sunday school is always Jesus. And it is now. The answer is Jesus, not Zeus. Here's what Colossians 1.15 says. The Son, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. The image, the Greek word there is icon or akon, which is from, uh, from which we get the word icon. He's the exact representation. That's what Jesus is. He's the exact representation of what God looks like. Hebrews 1.3 says the Son is the radiance of God's glory. What a phrase. And the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things. So for the Christian, at least, if we want to understand what God is like, we don't need to look out there into the culture. You don't actually primarily even need to look to uh, spiritual leaders or otherwise. They're always human. They always have flaws. They will always, to some degree, let you down. But you need to look into the face of Jesus. He's the one from whom you will find the most accurate, in fact, an exact representation of the character, the identity, the likeness of God. So what does Jesus have to say about prayer? Well, Matthew 6, if you've got your Bible open, well done. (laughs) If you haven't, you might want to open that or uh, Matthew 6 from verse 5 on your phone. This is what we uh, hear Jesus say, and just a, a word of context, Jesus here is in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. This is um, one of the most profound distillations of his teaching to his disciples. And really what he's doing in the midst of this sermon is to teach his disciples what the kingdom is like and how on the basis of what the kingdom is like, they should order their whole lives around him. And in the midst of that, he teaches on prayer. This is what he says, when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. The hypocrites. Now, we think we know uh, what Jesus means by the use of this word, hypocrites. It's people who don't practice what they preach, right? People who live by a double standard, Well, that's partly true, but actually, uh, Jesus is picking up a word here which would be used in Greek street theater. It's a word from Greek culture, hypocrites. Here we have uh, the definition. It is an interpreter from underneath. That's literally what the word means. But a hypocrite is a Greek actor. And the way that you would do Greek street theater is you would put on a mask. We've got a picture of a first century mask. Here is somebody acting surprised. But rather than doing it with their own face, they'd put the mask on to indicate their surprise, right? So a hypocrite is somebody who's wearing a mask. Somebody who's faking it. Whose exterior doesn't match up to what's going on below. And Jesus is critiquing here uh, the religious establishment, that probably particularly the Pharisees at this point, but he's po- pointing to people and saying, you look, you're like these actors. You're not practicing uh, what's real. You're not living out of what's happening at the core of who you are. To put this in 21st century terms, we'd say the hypocrites are the virtue signalers. 
You know the people who on uh, social media are like, uh, pray for this, pray for that. Hashtag pray for this. And there's no prayer going on. It's just about being perceived to be somebody that cares. It's not actually coming from a place of inward transformation. It's a virtue signal. Just putting it out there just to know, so you know I believe and think the right things. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying when you begin to pray, don't be like that. What would be the opposite of that? Be honest. Jesus is saying the best kind of prayers are honest prayers. The best kind of prayers aren't religious prayers. Do you know that? If you come into this place thinking the kind of prayers you're expected to pray in this prayer is a religious prayer, let me take that burden off your shoulders. I, want, I would want that every person in here would hear this this morning. The kind of prayers God wants you to pray are honest prayers. They're honest prayers. And if you fail to understand that, you will, your life of prayer will never go anywhere. If you spend your whole life praying prayers you think you should be praying, rather than prayers that are the ones that are coming from within you, you will never go anywhere in prayer. It will be very difficult for you. You have to begin where you are. Often that is frustration, anger, bitterness, hatred, lust. Do you know you can pray to God about lust? Do you know you can pray to God about anything? You've got to begin where you are. Jesus is saying, don't fake it. Don't stand on the street corners with a trumpet. Just get on your own and be honest. Get into the secret place. And the secret place, by the way, is your heart. Do you know what's in your heart? Find out and tell him about it. That's the beginning of prayer. Jesus then picks up another group. Lest you think he's harder on the Jewish establishment than he is on the outside pagan world. No, he says, look at the pagans as well. They're getting it wrong also. There they are, babbling away their prayers. When you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they'll be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Now, fixed prayers were used at this time. But it was, in Jewish culture, it was debatable whether they were acceptable, but generally they were thought to be acceptable if they were honest, if, if the person who was bringing them actually meant them. But actually what Greek prayers did, as we see in this next quote, Greek prayers piled up as many titles of the deity addressed as possible, hoping to secure his, his or her attention. Pagan prayers typically reminded the deity of favors done or sacrifices offered, attempting to get a response from the God on contractual grounds. This is how the pagans spread. Hey, God, you're awesome, you're mighty, you're great, you're glorious. You're gonna... Can you see me? Do you see what I did yesterday? Oh, I helped that lady across the road. It was fantastic, wasn't it? On the basis of that, would you be willing just to listen to me for a minute because you are so awesome and mighty and wonderful? I'll carry on because I'm not sure you've heard. And so on and so forth. Jesus is like, whoa, 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 chill your beans. So the Jesus model is kiss, keep it simple, stupid. Keep it simple. Jesus is like, look, if you're going pray to pray to God, just be simple, pray simply. That's all well and good. Be honest, keep it simple. But really, we've not, not even come across the main stumbling block in prayer. 
and we're about to. This is what Jesus says when he goes on. This then is how you should pray. Our Father. Our Father. And here is the point at which many of us begin to struggle the most. How can we pray to a God using language of fatherhood when our, however good a father model we've had, our vision of what it might mean for God to be father is so conditioned by what we see around us? This is the point. This is the point at which many of us struggle. We've all been disappointed by human relationships. We might have had a relatively functional parental model. And yet still, even then, if we go to God by sort of projecting the human example we've had, our father, timesing it by a thousand, even if we've had the best possible father we could have possibly had, we're going to struggle. God is not our father times a thousand. And so it's difficult. But you see, being a Christian isn't about sort of just using the language of prayer that Jesus had, that Jesus used. It's about connecting with the concept of fatherhood that Jesus carried. So if we're going to pray, what we first need to do is say, Lord Jesus, not what was my father like, or what are some of the father models in my life been like, but what is your father like? And how can I begin to understand your father? Jesus, would you teach me about your father? And in order to understand what Jesus' father is like, elsewhere, Jesus helps us to understand by giving us a story. And many of you know this story well. I've got to say, I know this story very, very well. And I've preached this story, I've preached this story here, at least on, on two or three occasions. But I don't think really uh, I understood fully this story, even until earlier this week. There, there's some parts of it that uh, have just come alive afresh. And I just really pray in these next few moments that God gives uh, the gift of a new understanding. Because I think there's something buried in this story which is so critical for us to understand if we're going to fully understand the Father heart of God and therefore, how to approach God in prayer. Now, this story is actually part of a parable. And the parable is three stories connected together. In Luke 15, at the beginning, it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering round to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the tax collectors, sorry, and the teachers of the law muttered, This man, wel- this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Here we have the virtue signalers. And they're gathering around Jesus again. The hypocrites, and they're saying, Jesus, you're hanging around with the wrong people. You're hanging around with sinners. It must be because you don't take sin seriously enough. You're not the kind of holy guy we want. And so on the back of that critique, Jesus told them this parable. Now, this parable is a collection of three stories. One, the first story begins uh, with... excuse me, with the story of a lost sheep, the second with the story of a lost coin, and the final one, which we're going to focus on today, is the story of a lost coin. Now, they have a similar theme. There's a similar narrative arc in each of them. Uh, It's about something precious to the owner, going lost, being found at the cost of the owner, and leading to great celebration. And the final story 
is a story of a son who gets lost and who's rescued. Now again, you've heard the story before. Jesus continued, verse 11 of chapter 15. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided the property between them. You've heard the story before, perhaps. Some of you may be hearing it for the first time today. But if we're really going to understand the story, we need to understand how unbelievably disgraceful certain elements of the story would be, beginning with this first one. The younger one, the younger son, said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided the property between them. While the father is alive, the younger son comes to the father, this farming family, and he says, Father, I'd like you to divide uh, the estate while you're still living, and I want my share right now. Now, th- this would be, this is disgraceful in Western culture. Imagine parents uh, take a, a, a venture, an adventure in your imagination with me just for a moment. Imagine your child comes to you uh, when your child is 17, 17 and says, Dad, Mum, it's been great living in the family home. I've finished school. I want to launch out on my own. Uh, and what I'd like you to do is I uh, imagine firstly, if your child came to you and said, what I, like, I want to do is I want to move out. I mean, parents at this point might be even be celebrating. <laughs> I want to move out. I'm going to make my own way. I'm going to get a job. I'm going to set up shop on my own. I want to be just, just near enough so I can pop in at the weekends. Uh, but I want to give you some space. I want some space. I want to make my own life. Uh, parents at that point would be like, yes, amazing. We've actually done our job. Some of you are nodding. Some of you are nodding particularly vigorously. But imagine uh, a, a similar but second situation. Just around us in the West, if the child said, look, I want to move out. I really want to start enjoying life rather than living here at home. And, and I know you've got many years to live but I'd like you to liquidate your pension and I'd really like you to sell the house because I want my share now. I want to go to Ibiza. There's some clubs. There's some clubs I want to visit. I I I just want to go hard at that life for a bit. What do you think? What would would a a good parent do? Son, you may well want that. Get out of my house. (laughs) And in Middle Eastern culture, it's that times a thousand. This would be tantamount to saying, Dada, I'd really rather you were dead. Would you drop dead? Seriously, that's what it'd be like. And the only proper response for a Middle Eastern father, a patriarch, would be to get the back of the hand, to strike the sun round the face, and to drive him out. One scholar, Ken Bailey, uh, was teaching, used to teach in the Middle East, and he said that he had a student who came to him at the end of one of his teaching sessions and said, I had this happen in my house. One of, one of my brothers went to our father and said this exact thing, and Ken said, well, what happened? And, and he said that, that he, my, father, my father struck him, he drove him out, and it took five years for my brothers and I to even get my father and my other brother in the same room together disgraceful. And what we expect, the response we expect, the the second disgraceful thing is that the response we expect doesn't happen. Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not at all. What an honoring, an honorable father, patriarch in this culture would do. So the first century listeners at this point, their minds have been blown 
It says, not long after that, the youngest son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth. So there's a second disgraceful point here, which is that the son has actually now liquidated his, his part. He's got money for the property, which was illegal in Jewish law. There's another element of disgrace. And without driving him out, the father allows him to leave with his inheritance. Now what transpires, and I'll spare the detail for, for the point of time, is that the son goes into the far country. It says in a various versions, he squandered his wealth in wild living. We don't necessarily know what the son's done. He's just been flashing the cash, living the life. There's actually not necessarily, it's, there's a tradition which suggests that he's been uh, living immorally. We don't know that. The older son brings that critique, but it's probably he's using exaggeration there. But certainly, the son wastes his money. Now, you need to understand one thing about first century tradition, and that is this particular ceremony existed, uh, the ceremony of Kezazar. Or Kezazar, I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce it, I confess. Kezazar we'll go with today. And this first century tradition existed which suggested that if a son received his inheritance and wasted it either in immoral living or, uh, uh, or by marrying somebody immoral, by uh, squandering wealth amongst Gentiles or by marrying somebody immoral, a ceremony would have to be enacted when they returned home. And in that ceremony, a uh, a big jar would be filled, a kind of jar, a, a terracotta jar or something that would be filled with water normally, and would be filled with burnt corn, and it would be taken to the, the, the uh, central place in the village, and in, in, the, in the sight of that person, that, of that young person, the jar would be smashed, and the whole village would say, you are cut off from the people. And after that ceremony, nobody was able in the village to do business, to feed, or to look after this person anymore. They were completely cut off. They would have to leave and stay forever outside the village if they were going to survive. The son goes into the far country knowing this. The son goes into the far country knowing that if he squanders all this money, he has to find a way to make it good again. He has to earn his money back. And so he comes up with a plan. I'll go and uh, hire myself out. I'll go and feed the pigs. That's what I'll do. So he goes and he gets himself into employment. Now this employment would be disgraceful for any young Jewish boy. To work among pigs would be the lowest of the low. But he has to do it because he knows he can't go home unless he's got the same amount of money in his pockets that he had before. Do you understand that? His whole future rests on the fact that he must be able to earn his way back home. And yet there's a downturn in the economy, the crash, like a crash in 2008. The, the, the market's turned upside down, and even feeding pigs is not going to do it. And he's hungry, and he's at the lowest of the low, so he comes up with a second plan. Now, the way I've always preached this story at this point is to say that this son at, the moment, at this moment repents. But the way that it's been explained to me this week, and I actually think this makes so much sense of the text, is not that the son's motivation here is repentance. At no stage in, in the original language is, is any word used here which refers to repentance. He doesn't repent here. His motivation isn't that he's sorry. His motivation here is that he's hungry. He wants to go home because he's hungry. 
He doesn't say at any stage, I want to go home. I know I broke my mother's heart. I know I've shamed and dishonored the family and my father. I really better make it up to my older brother. He's going to be really angry. He simply says, I'm hungry and I want some food. And so he devises a plan. It's a self-serving plan. It's a brilliant plan. He says, I'm going I'm to come up with this speech. Here it is. Father, three parts to it. I've sinned against heaven and against you. Oh, that'll make the old man pleased. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just a bit of groveling there. And that's all a setup for what I really want. Make me like one of your hired servants. In other words, would you teach me a trade? I want to become a carpenter. I want to do something whereby I can earn the money back. And maybe therefore I can pay it back and I can be restored. His understanding is that when he goes back into the village, the ceremony will be enacted. He will be cast out, but after a number of days have passed, he'll be able to approach his father quietly, go to his father and say, look, Dad, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm not, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Can you have a word with somebody in a, sur- a neighboring village? Can you put in a good word for me? I need to learn a trade. I'm going to make it up to you, Dad. The son here isn't relying on grace. He's not expecting a generous father. He's expecting justice as he returns. And what he gets is quite the opposite. Here's what we see in the text. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. The father surely must have been filled with anger. He must have been angry at his son. The anger of a spurned, a broken relationship of spurned love. And yet in this moment when he sees his son, the anger is transformed in this moment to compassion. Filled with compassion for him, he ran to his son, threw his arms round him and kissed him. This is an extraordinary demonstration of unexpected and costly love. You see, the father has no business doing this. The father has no business doing this because this is not what you would do to a son as hurt you in this way. But it's certainly not what you do as a Middle Eastern patriarch. It was true in those days, as in Sting's song, Englishman in New York, that a gentleman would walk, should walk and never run. There'd be no sense of a, of a man ever running because to run, what you would need to do is to, is to pick up your robes, either to hold them in your teeth or to gather them in your arms. And in so doing, you'd bear your ankles and your legs and goodness knows, maybe even your underwear to the village, which would have been disgraceful in and of itself. It would have exposed you to dishonor and you to shame. And yet what the father does in this moment is exactly that. He picks up his skirts because he sees his son. He's moved by compassion. And the only thing he can possibly think is, I've got to get to my son. I've got to get to my son before the village gets to my son. Because I know if they get to him first, they're going to take the pot with them. They're going to fill it with corn. They're going to break it. Kezazar. And he'll be cut off. And I can't bear to be cut off from my son again. I can't bear to be apart from him again. He's coming home. I want him here. In my house, 
where he belongs. The father takes upon himself that dishonor, the shame belonging to the son so that he can be united with the son. The shame, the dishonor has to go somewhere and the father takes it upon himself. He becomes a suffering servant. There's one other thing I, I want to tell you about this story. You'll have noticed, those of you who were more alert in the reading, the son doesn't finish his speech, does he? And I've always, when I've preached this, I've said, the father interjects. He's so glad to have his son back that he interjects. And I think, please accept my apologies. I think I've misread that. It says, while he was still a long way off, his father came and met him. The son said to him, verse 21, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the speech ends, and the third part of the speech is missing. What is missing? Make me like one of your hired servants. Can you maneuver and manipulate my situation here so that I can be restored? Why is it missing? It's as if what's happened here is the father has buried his tear-stained face into the son's neck. The son, for the first time, has understood the real wound all along. You see, the son came back with his plan thinking that the problem between him and his father was a problem of money. And if he could just make that right again, if he could just work hard enough to earn his way back to the father, then all could be right again. He failed to understand that the rupture in his relationship with the father was not about money. It was about the fact he's broken his father's heart. And as the father weeps into his neck, with shame covered in the shame that belonged to the son, the son understands for the first time, I broke dad's heart. That's the problem here. And so he says these words for the first time with honesty. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. It's as if he's saying, I can't do anything to earn my way back. All I can do is accept your love. And what we see the father doing is not just bringing him back, but robing him. This is just a, a wonderful, wonderful picture. If you, this happens today when my dad used to go away or my mum used to go away. I, I, when they came back, particularly with somewhere a bit more exotic, I, I, there was a ceremony called the opening of the suitcase. And I knew to expect something. It was most often something I didn't want or need. <laughs> but the thought was there and that's what counts. But the expectation here in this culture would very, very much be that if somebody returned from a trip abroad, they would bring gifts, but not just for the nuclear family, for the sixth cousin, five times removed. Everyone received gifts. This son comes back with nothing, and he receives from the father gifts. He receives a robe, a ring, sandals, and a celebration. Henri Nouwen puts it this way, the way the younger son is given robe, ring, and sandals and welcomed home with a sumptuous celebration make it very clear that all boundaries of patriarchal behavior are broken through. This is not a picture of a remarkable father. This is the portrayal of God, whose goodness, love, forgiveness, 
care, joy, and compassion have no limits at all. My question this morning is this. Can you pray to a God like this? Not a tyrant. Not a cosmic, penny-pinching miser. Not an abuser. A compassionate father who takes upon himself the dishonor belonging to you and I so that we can be restored to the place of belonging, to the place of love. Do you know there is nobody in this room today that God is not running out with tears to meet and to restore and to bring home? There is no one of us here who is not welcome in his arms, who's not welcome in his house. There's nobody who has done, said, thought, enacted anything that makes them, that takes them beyond the boundaries of his love. His grace is eternal. It is unfathomable. None of us will ever fully plumb its depth, but it is there for every single person. Man, woman, child, whatever your predisposition, whatever your orientation, God's love is available for you today because of what Jesus Christ has done on your behalf and on nothing else. And there is nothing that you could do to earn it or improve it, and there is nothing you could do to, le- to lose it. All you must do today is receive it. And when you understand that, you will be ready to pray. And I guarantee your first prayer will be, thank you. And if you get done praying that prayer, there's other stuff you can pray too. But it might take a while. How many of us see God as this kind of father? The father who overlooks our indiscretion who takes the shame we deserve upon himself and who allows the anger he might rightly feel to be transformed into compassion for us. This is who he is. This is who he is today, yesterday, and forever. My question to you today, if you're new to church, if you've not heard this news before, are you willing to look at God again? Are you willing to try to see to investigate whether he indeed could be as good as Jesus says he is. My question to you, if you've been in the church for decades, is are you willing to look at God again? Are you willing to look at him again? Are you willing to allow the Holy Spirit to change your image of what he's like? Why don't we stand together? We're going to pray. Thanks for listening to some of our teaching here at Trinity. We hope it's blessed you. If you live in the city or live outside of Nottingham and want to connect more with the church, check out some of our practices and pathways on our website. We call them One, Few, Company, and Many. We're passionate about encountering Jesus, becoming like Him, and doing the things that He did, both individually and in our lives together, so that we may see the church on fire and the city come alive. You can find these on our website under the Connect tab. Thanks for listening. Thank you.